From 11FS, I'm Sam Mall, and this is Connection Interrupted. Connection Interrupted is a weekly show focusing on individuals across all walks of life whose plans and journeys were interrupted, disconnected, or rerouted. These are their stories told in their words of the obstacles they faced, the challenges they overcame, and the role technology played both as an instigator and as an instrument for positive growth and change in their lives. How many immigrants do you know? I mean, no, can walk over and say, I've actually talked with them and know their backstory. I think most of us don't have that many, which is rather interesting in a country like the United States that literally was built on immigration. My friend Javed Mohammed Ghazali is a great example of this. Javed and his family came over to the U.S. just prior to the coup in Iran, and they stayed and made a life here, all of them American citizens. And Javed has spent a significant portion of his life protecting and, and working within government. He worked for Homeland Security, one of the first employees there, spent almost eight years helping prosecute terrorists, also went and worked in immigration, the Department of Labor for the U.S. So he knows how the system works and he understands what can have a positive impact from an immigration standpoint. That's why his story is so compelling. This is one of the most hottest topics and heated topics in the U.S. right now. So I wanted to reach out to somebody who was a subject matter expert, in my opinion, who not only has seen this from a governmental and regulatory side, but also has lived it as someone who came over here as a child and eventually became an American citizen. His tech solution, Road to Status, literally addresses the problems that we see from a government standpoint and from misinformation. This is his story. I always like to start the interview with an incredibly important question, which is really who's the best attorney, Molly or you? She's going to listen to this. Well, Molly doesn't practice anymore. So I guess I would be the better attorney, but when it comes to in-home negotiating, you know, she holds her own very well. So she, uh, she's still an attorney, but she's not practicing right now. How did you guys meet? Which is a, this is a very typical romance story, two people at Homeland Security, you know? Yeah, so we weren't at Homeland together. So I did my last semester of law school, which was right after September 11th. Um, I left. Uh, I went to Washington University Law in St. Louis, and then I was chosen to um, do my last semester working in D.C. for a senator. And then I ended up staying in D.C. permanently um, and taking a job with originally DOJ and then Homeland Security. When I moved out there, I had a good friend who had just finished clerking at the Missouri Supreme Court, and he was coming out there to teach a fellowship at Georgetown Law. He's actually my law partner now. He and I started the law firm. So he and I moved out there within a few days of each other, and he moved out there at the same time as one of his really good friends from St. Louis who I'd never met in St. Louis, and she was starting her first year at Georgetown Law. So my law partner now introduced the two of us when I just graduated from law school and she was just starting law school. So I'm, I'm, we're gonna we're jumping ahead. We will get back to your childhood because that's incredibly important. But I have to ask, what made you stay in D.C.? Because D.C. is not for everybody. I mean, it, it's not for sure. And um, D.C. is very transient. And we stayed there for about ten years, which is 
kind of, I don't know how much that is in normal people years, probably eight, 10 uh, decades. The type of work that I do, was doing was awesome. I mean, I was doing counterterrorism litigation for the Department of Homeland Security in the immigration context. It was a field that didn't even exist, really, or barely existed when I started law school. My work was great. Um, we lived in an awesome neighborhood. You know, one of my best friends was out there. It was a lot of fun. Um, and we stayed until it wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> well, that's, that's a, I like how you sum that up. And you're in St. Louis now, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing about D.C. that somebody told me a long time ago is one of the only two places in America that has its built-in expiration date into it. And you know when that happens. Somebody told me that it's D.C. and California. They say in California, if one day you come over a hill and you see the ocean and you aren't like, wow, that's amazing, then you become too jaded and you need to move. And they said the same thing about D.C. If you're in a cab after going to dinner and the cab makes a left turn onto Pennsylvania Avenue and you see the Capitol lit up to your left and it doesn't kind of make you go, I'm so lucky to be here, then you need to go. It's a pretty amazing place until it isn't anymore. <laughs> that's that's the best definition I think of it. That's the first time I've heard that. And that's actually a great definition. I love that. So let's 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 rewind though. Let's 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 go back um to when you were a little kid because your story is going to make a great movie someday. It will th- whoever plays you I'm sure will be a fascinating character. I don't know if you've ever thought about who's going to play you in your life story. Maybe we'll wrap with that question. I'll come back. You're look he's looking, folks. I'm watching him on video right now. He actually looked up, which means he's trying to picture who would play him. It's pretty good. There, there's a side the cynical side of me says it's gonna end up being David Cross. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be a comedy. That's good. It's, right, uh, right. It's, uh, it's an unintentional, <laughs> awkward comedy. Which is funnier because I think David Cross is Jewish. So that gets even funnier, but that's the most yeah. American thing. That's what makes yeah. what's supposed to be the most American thing, which makes me laugh. Um, your, but your life story is really, really interesting, actually, when, when you read back about it. Can you talk a little bit about how, what, what was the decision for your parents to come on over to the U.S. and what kind of drove your path, if you will, to become um, an American? Yeah. So my family's history in Iran, you know, and I don't I never really experienced it. We moved to America when I was two. But, you know, my grandfather, pretty interesting when I started meeting people in the United States who had met him. My grandfather um, was the first blind man to ever graduate from high school in Iran, the first blind man ever to graduate from college. He ended up you know, becoming a senator there. Um, he ran for office. He wrote books in five, six, seven different languages. Um, and then he eventually started taking some of his wealth and he started um, a school district in Tehran where any kid who was poor could go free of charge. And my dad was raised in that school district and he kind of led a life of comfort. And he ended up becoming the principal of one of those schools when he was about 15 years old. So that's kind of the backdrop of my family. Uh, My dad had eight brothers and sisters. Actually, he was one of eight. And kind of was raised in the upper classes of Iran. He went to the military and he eventually started studying chemistry. And his two of his brothers had already moved to the United States to pursue their science degrees. And he decided he was coming to Michigan State University in 1977 when I was two to um, pursue his PhD in chemistry. 
And and for most listeners uh, that haven't followed Iranian history, they might not understand the significance of 1977. Yeah, so we kind of moved to the United States, and from what my parents told me was with the intention of him doing, um, getting his PhD and then returning to Iran and kind of going into academia and possibly more. Um, but two years later, the revolution happened, and we kind of decided, yeah, this would be probably a cool place to hang out. Um, so uh, we stayed here, um, Mildly you know, fun. and it kind of, you know, it changed my life. I would have been during the Iran, the Iran-Iraq war started a few years later and it went, you know, I would have been in Iran from probably age five to 15 during the war. And that was a very different life than I was fortunate enough to leave here. Yeah, I mean, for for the listeners that aren't familiar, um, that was that was one hell of a long war, one hell of a vicious war. Um, they said about a million civilians. Yeah, were. yeah. I mean, it's it, and and you know that. I mean, you you've grown up here. Um, it's it is interesting. I don't know what the percentage is of Americans who have passports. I just know it's incredibly low. Um, and understanding what happens in the world outside of our borders is is fairly limited. Um, and you're, you're actually, we talked about this the first time we were on a call together. You're the second person I met whose family came over, whose parents came to study, and the revolution happened and ended up growing up here and, you know, becoming American citizens. Yeah. What are the odds? Yeah. And, well, I mean, but which is interesting, though, because there were so many of the families I grew up with in um, Michigan, that East Lansing, Michigan State community, the University of Michigan, um, Ann Arbor community. There were a lot of Persians there. And it was kind of weird to me when I moved to the Midwest to realize that there just aren't Persians everywhere. So, so yeah, your dad went to Michigan State. Did you grow up in Michigan State or U of M fan? Oh, I, I was a Michigan State fan for many years. My brother is, he was born, it's, he's six years younger than me. He was born in East Lansing and he's the contrarian. You know, I moved to St. Louis. I was a Cardinals fan. Raised in East Lansing, I was a Spartan fan. He was always a Wolverine fan. He likes the, you know, awful Chicago Cubs. <laughs> uh, he never lived in Chicago. So. You know, I haven't met your brother, but I like him a lot. Maybe I yeah. should have interviewed him. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's a he's a very successful corporate chef in the D.C. area. Oh, I do and like they, him. Oh, my yeah. God. I love him even more. Now, I'm going to be in Chicago in a couple of weeks. I'm going to hit him up. Oh, he's in D.C. I'll be in Damn Chicago. Uh, I'm all about the food. And um, without making any comments about you, you are too. Um, I've watched some of your videos, son. So I know you I know you, uh, you appreciate <laughs> good food as much as I do. Yeah, you know, like that was actually one of those things that kind of changed. When my wife and I were in D.C., you know, we both had very you know, well-paying jobs at the government. I was at. Homeland Security doing counterterrorism. Um, she was at Homeland Security kind of doing the gun running, financial crimes, child porn cases. And we had this really big rent-controlled apartment about a block from DuPont Circle. So we paid nothing in rent compared to everybody else we knew. I mean, we paid nothing in rent compared to our friends in Chicago. And we could go out every night. And then when after we got married and we moved to Chicago, had the baby, we couldn't go out nearly as often. So 
when we went out, we kind of blew it up. We'd always go out and really enjoy ourselves. <laughs> you live large. It's okay. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Instead of going out four nights a week, you know, you go out once every two or three months and you're like, we're going to do this right. Yeah. Kids change everything as, as uh, we both know. Um, so, so you're growing up really was pretty much the other than you learned to speak Farsi, you, you pretty much had the typical American story. I mean, you played tennis, you know, um, followed, like you said, this Cardinals of all freaking teams. I don't get well, it's your 11 time world champion, St. Louis Cardinals. Oh, Jesus. So, God. Yeah. Go there. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. But you, so, but you did, right? I mean, just a typical American kid. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, um, when we were in East Lansing, we moved from East Lansing when I was in second grade and moved to Southern Illinois, out, probably about 20 minutes outside of St. Louis. In East Lansing, it was very different because we lived in graduate married housing. So it was kind of like living at the UN. You know, I had – it was like the United Colors of Benetton. I had friends from Sudan, from you know Ethiopia, from France, from every country you could imagine. And then I moved to Edwardsville. Illinois. And there, you know, there were, I think, two Iranians in town at the time. Um, you know, it was the running joke that like the black kids in the neighborhood kind of, not in the neighborhood at school kind of adopted me because there were not that many of us. It was very um, Southern, Illinois, white, um, kind of suburban, but kind of also rural all at the same time slammed together. And you were just you know, played a lot of video games, was hung out. That those were really your only choices. <laughs> my my degree is from uh, Southern Illinois, by the way. Yeah. Never been there. I was in the military, so went to their you know offsite school. But yeah. but there you go. I heard it's nice. It looks hilly. Carbondale looks nice. Just never seen. Yeah, Carbondale is about two hours away, but yeah, I spent a lot of time down in Carbondale. So so you go from growing up as your typical American. When did you become an American citizen? Nineteen ninety nine. So that's actually like the weird part about it. I applied, my mom, my dad, and I all applied as soon as we could. We applied probably my freshman year in college. So that would have been 93-ish. You know, I had to turn 18. Um, and we applied all at the same time. My given first name when I was born, my given name was Muhammad Javad was my first name. But I've never gone by Muhammad. I always went by, by Javad. So at the time, I changed my name. And my mom got her citizenship within six months. My dad got his within like seven months. And it took me five years. So the <laughs> whole time. And like, Why? I well, I don't know. I had no idea. Probably bureaucratic mess up. But for me, I always saw myself as American. I didn't even think about it. So my whole time in college, I was a permanent resident and fraternity member, you know, at a big, I went to the University of Illinois, a Big Ten school. And then years later, I become an immigration prosecutor, and I look back at all the shit I did when I was in college, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, <laughs> you know, like, like if anybody had caught me, there would have been some bad times. I would not have done well getting deported back to Iran. <laughs> oh man, it's uh, yeah, that 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 does crack me up, it, especially the life path you chose, right? The career path, the fact that you went into, and and what you're doing today, which we'll get to, but I, I love the fact. That you're you're the first person I know who's first. I, I want I want to say real job because, like you said, you 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 worked in a uh, for a senator. Um, you've you've done that internship, but you you basically went to work for Homeland Security. Yeah, two thousand and three, right? I got the job offer in two thousand and two, 
And then by the time my clearances came through, it was January 2003. So we're talking about, I mean, when I was hired, I was hired by the Department of Justice. And three months later, the Department of Homeland Security stood up and our whole group got traded over. So we were, oh, I was there from the first day of Homeland Security. I think Tom Ridge, I got some really shitty uh, uh, certificate that was given to me <laughs> so that I was a founding member of the Department of Homeland oh, Security. Jesus. I love that. It took you five years to become an American yeah. citizen, but you are a founding member. Of, of Homeland Security. Who named it Homeland Security, by the way? Because it just... Yeah. I've always had a problem with that name. It is so... Goose-steppy? Yes. There's just this yes. fascist blend to it. Um, I have no idea. Uh, listeners, I, I served 10 years in the military. Don't give me crap. I was in the first Gulf War. So, um, you know, proud military veteran. That name sucks. Yeah, I was always like, every time I had to read the mission and see it, you know, I think we did a lot of great work there and our, we were very focused on the things I think back then that we should have been on. Um, but I always thought it was weird reading the mission that our, our mission was to protect the homeland. You know, that. Yeah. So yeah. Star Wars trooper, right. um, feeling to it. So you were in Homeland Security from 2003 to 2010, right? Yes. Yep. Do, and what exactly was your role during that time? So I, was hired as something called a presidential management fellow. It's an entry-level program for graduate students into the government. They hired me on to the INS's National Security Unit. So I was embedded with a bunch of special agents after 9-11. And I don't know how much you know about the history of why immigration kind of went over to the Department of Homeland Security. Um, I mean, quite simply, when the FBI is staking out the house of Mohammed Atta, who was the ringleader of the 9-11 attacks six months after he's dead or however many months after he's dead. And they're going through his mail and they get a letter in the mail where INS has extended his visa, you know, months after he's dead and he's been identified. That was a bad time and Congress did not like that. And so they redid everything and they basically took the customs agency and the immigration agency and slammed them together and made three different agencies out of it. And one of them was Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So I was with the Immigration and Nat um, Naturalization Service at DOJ, and all of us moved over to U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is the law enforcement arm of Homeland Security, doing immigration work and customs work. So I was initially, I spent two years as a fellow working with the agents, and we were working through databases, looking for people who were bad guys, either for criminal reasons or for more nefarious reasons, who had disappeared throughout the United States. And we were sending agents out to find them because back in the old days, you know, we wouldn't work with people who were in jail and work to deport somebody before they were out of jail. They were just kind of let free and given a sheet of paper that says, hey, show up in two months for your immigration hearing so we can deport you. And those people just disappeared. And so my focus was really on um, people that other government agencies had put into databases saying that these guys might be a threat. So we were out looking for them. Some of them, we would meet them, interview them, clear them. You know, there are thousands of Muhammad Muhammads in America. So you'd get one place that says, Muhammad Muhammad's a bad guy. And you'd have to go through and be like, it's not this Muhammad Muhammad. Um, so I ran that, and then I got detailed to 
the National Security Law Division at Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And it was a team of four of us at the time. And basically what we did was we used immigration laws with other agencies to work to neutralize people who were involved in espionage, financial terrorism, um, actual terrorism. And when I say actual terrorism, that could either be what I called little t terrorism, people who were involved in terrorist activities that had nothing to do with America. A Pakistani who had blown up something in India, an Indian who had blown up something in Pakistan. But that's just somebody we don't want here. Or we're working on capital T terrorism, people who are involved with more of the Middle Eastern groups that are focused on America. So we would use immigration laws the same way probably the the Department of Treasury used um, tax laws to go after people like Capone. We used immigration laws to disrupt different cells, find people involved in financing, identify them, and try to get them out of the country. And we do that hand-in-hand with a bunch of different law enforcement and intelligence agencies. So I ended up being on the ground floor there and was there until I left Homeland. And at the point I joined, they told me that nobody had done this type of work for more than three years in a row. And I left at nine and a half years. What what motivated you? Is was it I mean, was it something coming out of nine eleven? It was just the way you were brought up. I mean, what motivated you want to do this? Because in the movie version, it's nine eleven. You're you watch this happen, you're yeah, like, I'm gonna do that. Yeah, that's it's not nowhere near as heroic as that. I mean, nine eleven really had a huge impact on my career and my life. Just because my three years in law school in St. Louis some really, I mean, we had a common area in our law school, which is now a cafeteria, but it was a room where you could study, but they had these big screen TVs. And I remember seeing some of like the biggest moments of my life in that room. Bush v. Gore happened while I was in law school. So I was sitting around with my law school friends, sitting around watching the Supreme Court issue the decision, making George Bush the president. Um, but During my third year of law school, my first semester of third year of law school, we had a program called the DC Clinic, where all of us in our class could um, apply to spend our last semester in DC where a professor would fly out, but we would work for either a government agency or somebody in Congress. So I applied for that like the first week of September. And then... uh, About a week later, September 11th happened, which was just devastating to the world. And either a day or two before or a day or two after, I think it was a day or two after, I was told that I was chosen for the program and you're moving to D.C. Like, well, D.C. is still on fire. That's not um, great. So then I fly out the next month. I think it was October 14th or 15th. um, I had... um, was interviewing with Senator Jean Carnahan. She was the Democratic senator from Missouri. And she's kind of famous um, for a lot of reasons. And one of them is fairly tragic is that her husband was running for that Senate seat um, against John Ashcroft. And he was the city. I remember that. And a few weeks before the election, he died in a plane crash with his campaign manager, his son, and another staffer. And he was left on the ballot. and he ended up beating John Ashcroft and all of us were like, great, we got rid of John Ashcroft and then George Bush appointed him attorney general. Um, but Gene was selected as senator. So I flew out 
to DC in October 2011 and interviewed with her. And it was at the fifth floor of the Hart Building. And the same day I was there, two doors down, Senator Daschle got the anthrax letters. So by the time I moved back in January of 2002, my first office in DC was not in a fancy Senate building. I was on the top floor of the Postal Museum. I was in a utility closet that was probably six feet by nine feet. And there were six of us in that closet together so that if one person had to get up, all of us had to get up out of that. We were there for about a month and a half before we moved back into the Senate building and it was clean. So while I was there, I had a friend and she told me about this presidential management fellowship program that I had never heard of. I was like, I need a job. That sounds cool. I like DC. Um, so I applied for it. I got a position and that position was a position that allowed me to apply with any government agency. So I came back to DC a few months later and ended up going to the convention center where every government agency is there, met somebody with INS's deportation group, really liked me. I had no interest in being on like the straight deportation team. But after we talked, he knew my background. He said, hey, there are these guys that are on our national security team. I'd like for you to meet them. So I met them and they told me about their job and I never really kind of thought about that before, but I said, this sounds kind of cool. So eventually they made me a job offer and I waited for my clearance to get done and then I went into it. And Homeland Security was stood up really quickly. And I don't think that for funding reasons, Congress had really thought it through. I mean, not nearly as much of a cluster as this tax bill is that just happened a few days ago where they wrote it on the back, where they actually deliberated on this and still made huge mistakes. So when I went to Homeland Security, there was all of these funding issues, which prevented people from getting hired and transferring. And that's a great place to be if you're kind of trying to move up the ranks, you know, <laughs> they're like, oh, this position is open. Uh, well, we don't hey, want you to bring anybody from the field for it. Is there anybody who lives here who wants to do it? I'm like, I, I want to do it. And so I. You're, you're like the uh, Forrest Gump of Homeland Security. When you, you've been at every major event in the vicinity of it during that period of time. You know, they more referred to me as the cockroach. I was the one that they couldn't kill and kept kept moving up. But I went from, and I think I did very good work and people liked what I did and I got promoted. But I mean, you're talking about, I went from a GS9, $36,000 a year position to a GS15, $130,000 position in about five, maybe six years, probably six years. How do you go from Homeland Security to the Department of Labor? Did you not have enough? Because you did like another three years at the Department of Labor? Four. So I was... What's wrong with you? I mean, I like you a lot. Yeah, the Department of Labor gig sucked and that was not (laughs) super great. Um, That's a great summary. It was awful. I mean, there was... So my wife and I, after she graduated from law school, she went to one of the biggest firms in the world, Latham & Watkins. And, you know, got some great training there. But eventually, she kind of wanted to move and do something more hands-on. So we were able to get her a job at Homeland Security. And she and I worked on the same floor doing very different things. Um, And in 2009, we were married in 2008. And in 2009, you know, we found out we were having a baby. We kind of decided at that point, I got to the top of the national security world. um, Didn't really want 
to move into some of the other choices that were there. And having a baby doing that kind of work with those kind of hours didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So I started applying for jobs, and there was an immigration position running one of the Department of Labor's programs in Chicago. And we kind of wanted to move back to the Midwest, but I also wanted to be closer to my parents, but not close enough that they could call me in the middle of the night to like unplunge a toilet. So moving from D.C. to Chicago was kind of a natural move. So I took the position there, and then my wife got a job transferred to the Homeland Security Office in Chicago, and she moved over to the world where she was deporting. This was back in the Obama heyday of immigration, where Obama said, hey, I'm going to change the focuses and the focus and we're going to go after the real bad guys. And so she was working on in court, um, doing child, you know, deporting child molesters, gang members. And you saw the Obama deportation numbers go really high. But that was yeah, also- people don't realize that. right? And it's not people don't realize that people ignore that as a better way of putting it. Right. He had the highest deportation numbers of anybody. But on top of that, it was really focused. It was going after the real bad guys, you know, the people that we wanted to get rid of. Your wife's name is um, is not very Molly. yeah Molly. That is not very Persian. No, by it's, the way, uh, Molly Farrell. She's a uh, Irish German, <laughs> and she goes by Farrell because Molly Kazali would be a stupid name. Oh my God, I hadn't put that together. Yeah. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah, That's, Molly uh, Kazali. Would be a stupid that makes name. my that makes my day. If I was because you got married in a Catholic church, right? We she's did. It's, it's a running joke. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, she's Molly Catholic and I am not. And one of my best friends from college is, I call him the super Catholic. Um, and <laughs> I can tell him I got married by a bishop and he didn't. So. Oh, but the Molly Kazali part yeah. still, I'm picturing like the Princess Bride and the the priest and that. Oh, my God. Well, it's more like that, Julia Gulia from um, Wedding Singer. <laughs> that, is, uh, that is perfect. But that said, Molly in the work she did, you know, between the two of you, has everyone ever said, thank you for your service? By the way, no one has ever said that to me after, you know, uh, a decade of serving. No, but I, I don't think people realize what you guys did I, as a couple. I don't think she's gotten the accolades. You know, I don't never had somebody use those specific words, but with the terrorism stuff, I get asked to speak a lot. You know, I kind of say, you know, when somebody acknowledges you that way, you know, on the team that we had, you know, we had a lot of really good people on that team, both with the agents and, other agencies and the other attorneys. So I think I've gotten enough accolades and I've milked that uh, cow pretty well. <laughs> well, for both of you, here you go. I'll say it. Um, you know, that was for a country that was, especially in the early days, that was, uh, that was, I actually remember I was, I think I was in my late thirties at the time and I actually considered reenlisting and my, my wife, um, you know, completely talked me out of it. You know, she, she's like, look, we have kids, you're too old, knock this off. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's always interesting for me for, for the roles people played during that time. And again, that move to L- Department of Labor for those four years, um, I, I get that it was probably not the most uh, yeah. no, there were a lot <laughs> fun of fun times. Of that I mean, it job. was what it was, right? Yeah, there are a lot of other reasons that job sucked. But I always feel kind of uncomfortable when people – I've heard a lot of people say, oh, we were on the front lines of the global war on terror. And I always thought, no, we were, we were the guys in the back that did a lot of very good work, but I always kind of feel uncomfortable when I do that, when I see guys coming back from, you know, the war zones with the injuries that they've had. You know, we were talking before um, this call about one of my heroes. It was a guy named Justin Constantine. Justin was 
on my floor at Immigration and Customs, but he wasn't doing immigration work. He wasn't doing customs work. You know, he was doing more of the administrative law type work. But he was a Marine, and when um, they needed Marines in Iraq, Justin, you know, re—I don't know if, if he re-enlisted or reactivated. I don't know the exact terms. And he went over, and he was in Fallujah. And he wasn't going over there as a judge advocate general, as an attorney. He went over there, I think he was in first civilian. And, you know, Justin was shot and grievously injured and probably should have died. You know, a sniper shot him in the head and um, went through many surgeries and survived. And actually, one of the, when you talk about weird communication, um, we sent a letter to Justin while he was at Ramstein asking him what we could do. And he said, hey, take care of my unit. I was involved with this charity that actually our common friend Chris is involved in called Kegs for Kids. So Chris Dahl in Charlotte, North Carolina. There's your one and only shout out, Chris. That's the only one you get. Um, And Chris uh, and I and our friend John Basler had been involved in this charity that we had called Kegs for Kids, where we would throw parties to raise money for Toys for Tots. So we'd become good friends with the Marines. to raise all of this money um, because they're not allowed to throw big parties in bars and we'd raise thousands of dollars a year. So through that, I knew that we could get some stuff over to Justin's unit in Iraq. So all of us at Homeland, we got like 2,000 pounds of stuff together to send over there. And I was like, how am I going to ship this to Iraq? This is going to be thousands of dollars. So I called the guys over at Boeing in um, Air Force Base and they were like, oh, you know, uh, I think it was a major at the time, Major Constantine. Yeah. We'll do whatever you can. So we took all the stuff over there and we shipped it. And so we, sh- and this was before KBR and Halliburton were there and you can buy everything. So we were sending over magazines and wet wipes and newspapers and cookies. And so we send it over there. And this is like four months after Justin got hit. And I get this letter back from one of the guys. Thank you so much. You know, we really appreciate it. But more importantly, you guys are the first people who ever told us that Justin survived. They all thought that Justin had died, like they'd done all the ceremony and all that. Now, Justin, you know, he's now a motivational speaker, goes across the country helping veterans get jobs. You know, you can find him. He does corporate events. Um, President Bush, when he did his most recent book with the paintings of wounded heroes, Justin was in there. So, you know, when people go back and say, oh, we're so proud of your service, Javad, I'm like, I was a lawyer. You know, we got rid of bad guys, and there were a lot of cases that I was proud of, but it's nowhere near the sacrifices that people like you and Justin went through. You know, we've had, yeah, I mean, when you think about it, we've had two generations now, probably going on three, in a constant state of war. It is just, it, it and, and I agree, I live in a military town, I live in Jacksonville, Florida, um, heavy Navy presence, and especially with the way medicine has advanced, people in previous wars that never would have survived right? Losing limbs, losing multiple limbs are, are still out there. And, uh, and yeah, that's a whole nother, a whole nother show. Well, that's, that's the morbid, one of the morbid facts I tell people about is that um, one place where Iran and the U.S. really overlap is the dominance of those countries for many years in the Paralympics. But, but that is because you have so many soldiers who have been maimed and have fought back and have made themselves stronger and then represent their countries afterwards. So after the Iran-Iraq war in 1988, when that ended for years, the Iranians did great in the Paralympics. And now the former U.S. soldiers 
you know, or, and we're still bringing people back. So we kind of kind of off on a segue there, but not an important segue. That's my favorite part about this uh, podcast is we can do that. So, so after working at Homeless Security, you, you moved back to St. Louis, you helped found a law firm there. Um, and, and taking, you know, all those years of experience working within the government, working on immigration and seeing this and seeing what the problems are. And this is where I want to spend the second half of the show really focused because this, we're, we're ripping this from the headlines, the entire issue around immigration in the U.S., um, both people trying to get in and people that are already here and their status. You are as deep in this as anybody I've ever talked to. And I want a reality check for the listeners. I really do. Um, we will talk about road to status, an organization or, uh, or an actual um, tech solution, because this is a tech-driven podcast that you've helped found. But it, how, how, would, how do you go about describing the, the current situation around immigration in the U.S.? That's an incredibly loaded question. Totally fucked up. Hey, I love you for that. That is... that It, it is. I mean, I actually this morning was talking to a counselor that needs to evaluate one of my clients. And she kind of brought up, she was like, you know, it sounds like you and probably the people who are doing immigration cases now probably need to start talking to people because it is, it's really messed up, man. I mean, so as I said, we were talking earlier about Obama. He was focusing on the bad guys. Right now, it seems like this administration is just trying to jack up their deportation numbers as high as possible. And there's one group of very, very vulnerable people who are falling into this. And dealing with those cases just makes me anxious and just sick to my stomach. So there are a lot of people here who are undocumented. Some of them came across the border, were never caught. A lot, about half, this is something people don't talk about, about half the people who are here who are undocumented didn't come from Mexico, came from other countries on visas and just never left. The Irish and the Canadians and, you know, French and West Africans. Then you have people, and this is a smaller subset that people don't think about. You have people that were caught for being here without status many years ago. They went through immigration court and they were ordered deported from this country. But for various reasons, that the Obama administration and the Bush administration and the Clinton administration, I mean, literally I had somebody in here whose story started in 1997 yesterday, determined that these people are not a threat to America. They're hard workers. They deserve to be here, but that the immigration laws haven't caught up because we haven't really fixed our immigration laws in plus 20 some odd years, that we're going to let these people stay here. So these people have been showing up once a year to immigration. They've been filing their taxes. They've been working. One of these, some of them have businesses where they're employing dozens upon dozens of Americans. They're in all intents and purposes Americans. The only thing is they don't have that document. And they have gone through background checks multiple times. And they have been told by both Republican and Democratic administrations that you're safe. You can stay here. And here's the part where they get screwed. They keep updating the government and telling them where they live. And they show up every year when they have to. But these people are here discretionarily. And so if the Trump administration decides, I want to change that, 
I don't want to exercise my discretion anymore. Even though these people aren't a threat, even though these people are high performers, even though these people are employing Americans, these are the easiest people to pick up and deport because they've already finished their judicial reviews. You know, I can't fight in court in most cases for them. They can just pick them up and let them go. And those are people who are getting targeted right now because those are the easiest people to deport and they're the easiest people to jack up your numbers. And you're tearing, you know, you're tearing apart families that have kids who have been here for 20 years. Um, there's not a person in America that if they had x-ray vision and could see the immigration status of the people who are there around them is not positively affected by these people. They're making your meals. They're mowing your lawns. They're installing your cabinets. Sometimes they own the restaurant that you go to. And those are the people who are disappearing right now. And, you know, a few weeks ago, I had a Haitian woman come in here and she was being called. She'd been here for years and she had been called um, in for her interview. And she was like, they're going to reverse this and deport me. And I have two kids here. And before I knew anything, I get a call. They're in Canada because the Haitians have been told we need to run away from America. America isn't safe. Canada will protect us. I never thought when I worked in immigration that we would be in a situation where people are running away because we're not protecting them anymore. And that's what's happening now. And because in, in many of these cases, this actually is a life and death situation, right? I mean, you're, you're going to a country you might never have ever been to in your life. You've got literally no support system there. In some cases, you know, you could be going, you know, you look at, you know, what's happening in Honduras huh. right now is a great example of that, right? I mean, you're going back right. to a war zone. You know, and you, you talk about things like this, like, my my going back to Iran is very different now that I've worked for Homeland Security. So let's put that aside. But you talk about when I was a college student, you know, if they had dropped me into Iran, I couldn't have functioned, you know, and it's just, and that's who's become our priority now. Um, I always said that the most important person in the criminal justice system and in the immigration justice system is a well-meaning, big-hearted prosecutor. Okay. I made my bones as an immigration prosecutor, as a terrorism prosecutor, because they would fly me into cities before I had a big case and I would do normal immigration cases and I would build my reputation with the judges and they would know that the 90 year old Guatemalan grandmother if I could work to come up with a way for her to stay in America to be with her grandkids, I would do it because I was ethical. I, I was given the authority by my bosses to do stuff like this. And they trusted me so that six weeks later when I came into court and I started jumping up and down that this guy's an asshole and he's a threat to us and they need to go away. And his defense attorney would be like, oh, Mr. Kazal is being, you know, he's everything he says is hyperbole. The judge would be like, no. I've seen this guy before. He's compassionate. And so when he says somebody's a bad guy, I believe it. And that's been taken away from the attorneys here. That's been taken away from the adjudicators here. We keep hearing that there's discretion, but I talk to immigration attorneys and it's very few times it's being expressed. Um, so it's, it's a tough world. It's got to be a tough world for being a compassionate government employee now to say that you can't make those calls anymore. 
How do you, so I'm, I'm curious as somebody, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this from an expert opinion. Again, you know, you look back at what you've done for so long um, in, in your professional career. The United States, the concept that we constantly hear is we're a nation built on laws, right? We are a nation built on, I heard President Obama say that, I don't know how many times, and always yeah. go back to the law. When, when you look at what's happening under the current administration, and, and you look at what can, you know, the, the, the number of judges, right, that can be, that are being established, right, and what can happen with the judicial system, are you worried? Terrified. I mean, the way that I kind of, from what I've heard, the way I landed on your um, footstep was I did an op-ed for the New York Times about kind of my experience. And we live in a world now in America where I can deport, I can have a pass where I deport terrorists, where I work with government agencies to identify bad people and come up with laws and um, means by which we can eliminate bad people. At the same time, I have a government that says, I, as an American citizen, not somebody who just was born here and it was a fluke, somebody who the U.S. government decided is somebody we want to be an American. I went through all of the stuff. I was chosen to be an American. It was a great honor of my life. I was hired to protect America. And now you're telling me I do not have the right to ever see my relatives who live in Iran again. Well, when you wrote the piece, your father... He had cancer, right? Um, yeah, he's very, he's very ill. Yeah, and so it's this concept of seeing a family that pose zero threat, right? I mean, literally, zero threat. There's never been a single documented case of an Iranian involved in a terrorist act in America. Not a single one. We have dozens of Saudis. We have, you know, we have the number of white males that we see shooting up schools and Cinemas. We're not doing anything there, but not a single case of Iranian. When it when it comes but, to terrorism, period. I mean, help me out here. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, some people will point to the Boston bombing, um, but uh -huh. again, they had been in the country, the family, for decades, right? If I'm not if I'm not mistaken, they had been here for quite a while. That's true. Yeah, uh -huh. I mean, to my knowledge, and, and under and under the current ban, they'd still be they here. They would be allowed into right. the it right. Is. They'd be allowed to come. right. Exactly. The, the one that always blows my mind is, you know, Facebook memes are kind of a waste of time sometimes, but sometimes they are eye-opening. You see, whenever there's a terrorist act in France, everybody changes their Facebook profile picture to have a French flag overlay. But you see of these weekly hundreds of people getting killed in Middle Eastern countries. These terrorists, by far, exponentially kill Muslims more than anybody else because they're not Muslim enough. I'm not a religious person. You know, my middle name's Muhammad, but organized religion, you know, if you're from Iran and you've seen how organized religion has affected that country, it makes you a little bit um, wary. But it's nuts to me to say that people who are running away from terrorists should be people that we're focusing on and punishing. Now, I remember one of the first things I did before I even graduated from law school, but when I did that semester in D.C. and hadn't really done much immigration, I worked on something called a private immigration bill. And it was for this Kenyan woman who had been working at a bank across the street 
from when from the U.S. embassy that got bombed in Kenya. And she fell 12 stories and ended up in the U.S. for medical care. And her documentation had expired. And she was one of the first victims of al-Qaeda terrorism. And we worked to keep her, Senator Carnahan worked to file a bill to keep her in the United States. We didn't go, oh, she's from Kenya. She's a Muslim. We said, no, she's a victim. She was targeted by these assholes. What can we do to help? You know, that's where I believe that the whole ethos of this country, at least from a governmental aspect, has changed. It's no longer, we're here to defend you, and we're here to protect you, and we're here to help. It's, oh my God, we're afraid. Let's hide behind a wall. We're so afraid. Okay. When did the idea for Road to Status, and and first talk about the idea for this, and then exactly what Road to Status is, if you don't mind. So, So Road to Status is an online platform that allows people to fill out their immigration paperwork themselves, or either through their own choice or based on the algorithm, connects them with attorneys that can help them do their cases in a more efficient way that is more profitable for the attorney and is cheaper for the client. It's also a piece of software that an attorney like me can use internally to manage my cases, fill out my forms. The idea came to me in immigration court when I was defending the U.S. And I would see people who would come in who had, you know, the immigration statute for America is 2,500 pages long. It is, um, it's about, you know, if I held up my hands, about four inches thick of just laws and statutes. The only law that's longer is the tax code. Um, it's very difficult to navigate. And you'd find people in there who, through this total web of laws and regulations, I could see actually had a basis to legally stay in the United States. Why is it, we're, we're a nation that's built on the concept of immigration. Uh-huh. So why is it so complicated? Is it just something that's never really been addressed and just over time? Oh, it, it has been addressed. It has been addressed, but it's been addressed in a Frankenstein sort of way. Basically, the law is written and then somebody adds to it. And then when they add to it, they didn't add to it correctly. So we have to fix it. Like, here's a concept that I tell students that I talk to about immigration. We have deported hundreds of thousands of people from America because of a typo in the law. It's a typo all of us know about. It's a typo that every single immigration attorney for the government and for private law knows about, and nobody has fixed. Basically, when the law was passed, uh, I'm going to make this as basic as possible. The idea was if you commit certain felonies, we're going to deport you. But if you commit a misdemeanor, we're likely going to let you stay in the United States. And the difference between a felony and a misdemeanor is that misdemeanors are things that you get up to a year in jail for. Felonies are things that you can get a year or more. So, But there's a one-day overlap. You could actually get exactly 365 days a year for both a misdemeanor and a felony. So what the law in one section of the law says is that if you get convicted of something where you get more than a year in jail, we can deport you. That was the intent. But later on in the law, it says if you get a year or more in jail. So what does that mean? 
That meant that people who were convicted of misdemeanors, well, their misdemeanor could have gotten them a year in jail, exactly one year. So we were deporting all of these people who had misdemeanors, even though the law never meant it. We all know it was a typo, to the point where one state has actually fixed that. California changed their law to make the maximum for a misdemeanor. They reduced it from one year to 364 days because they're like, it's purely for immigration purposes. So yeah, that's how you get a Frankenstein law. Different people write it. And even when you have time to think about it, when you have a law this big, you're going to make mistakes, which is what terrifies me when you have a tax bill that's passed this quickly and people are writing in the margins and don't know how this section connects to that section and you're not using your pros. So everybody who is serious at all about fixing the immigration system knows that we have to do a comprehensive, over-the-top rehaul, make this much more simple, makes this better for business, makes this better for our communities and rewrite it from top to bottom. How hopeless is that to actually happen under the political climate that we've had for the past, Lord, I don't know, 10, 12 years, it seems. We, we were super close to doing it when I was at Homeland. We had everything was agreed to, and it was just that Republican leadership knew that there were votes for both Republicans and Democrats to pass it, and Republican leadership didn't put it forward, because you know, their fear is that if all of these people become citizens one day, well, a higher percentage of them will be Democrats, you know, but okay, you know, do this and then let's see what happens. You know, I was at a conference, I was actually at a Christmas party a few weeks ago, and I was talking to these guys who work with carnival owners. And carnival, you know, the people who own carnivals are very conservative, but carnivals move around all across America. And carnival workers don't make a ton of money. And Americans don't want to work at carnivals getting uprooted every six days. So carnivals have been very much manned by Mexican workers who come here. They work very hard. They want to do the work. The amount of money they make, which isn't a lot here, helps them. And they come for six, nine months and go home for three months. They've been doing this for years and years and years. And the new immigration policies, there's nothing that's changed the rules for them. It's just this administration has made it harder. And now those people are not getting their workers and they're going out of business. American businesses are going out of business. And what have we done? How have we made America safer? We've kept little kids from being able to ride the Sizzler. Yeah, we've we've seen that in the South where I, where I live. And, you know, I can look in Alabama. You can look at Georgia. You can look at Florida where we have crops literally dying because we can't get anybody right. to work, to actually do the work. Right. And that type of work, we're focusing on that. But then there's a whole bunch of work where we allow foreign workers in. You cannot tell me that in Florida, you can't find with the unemployment there and the large Haitian population there, you can't find Americans who are willing to be maids and Americans who are willing to work at hotels. But those are all getting approved. I mean, it's almost like we have a world in which somebody could profit from Florida hotels. I don't know who that would be. It's amazing that those are getting through and people to work at vineyards are getting through and people to work at golf courses are getting through. But, you know, if you need to get your oranges off the tree, you can't do it. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine in Silicon Valley yesterday and um, we were both laughing because we we started talking down multiple of these paths, right, of what's happening in our country right now. And um, 
you know, we, we finally wrapped up saying we're going to get together for a stiff drink. <laughs> a couple yeah, of stiff drinks. The Silicon Valley thing is so crazy to me. Look at how much value and how many jobs Google and Microsoft and Apple have made. America's world power isn't because of our military anymore. You know, we have the strongest military, but we also should realize that we don't want to deploy our military. You know, it's good to have that sitting back. But the longer you guys are out in the field, the more fatigued you get and the more it costs us. And it's not, you know, that's not what makes America strong. What made America strong was GM and Ford and all of what you were raised in back in the day in Michigan. And we had the strongest economy in the world and we were Levi jeans. You know, you talk about Levi diplomacy in the 80s with the Soviets. We had products that people wanted. Well, now our manufacturing for Various reasons isn't what it used to be anymore. You know, labor for that has gotten cheaper in the Far East. And those industries, no matter how much we try, we can't match them. You know, now for certain things, we've been slowly bringing back like car assembly here. That's good. But technology is where we're kicking everyone's ass. You know, Google's here. Microsoft's here. Apple's here. Those three companies affect more people than anything else out there. But the internet can be done anywhere. Why would we make it harder for them to bring programmers over here? Because it's not like they're going to go out to Nebraska and find somebody from a farm and turn them into a programmer. What they're going to do is they're just going to move that job to Ottawa. Well, we're seeing that. Yeah, we're seeing that in West Virginia, right? Um, with, with you know the coal industry, which is a whole other god-awful conversation. But the idea of bringing education to them, you know, to, to folks that have been in the coal mining industry and to say, look, we can, we can teach you basic coding and being able to do this. And they're struggling to get folks to actually sign up and do the classes. The rates right, haven't been great. They've all been, they've all been convinced that this is all coming back. And, you know, it's why would we make our immigration law, laws harder for the Googles of the world? Wouldn't we want people to come over and make them expand and hire more people and have Google be hiring more Americans to do stuff to support these types of businesses? You know, and that's kind of the concept behind Road to Status. Is let's use technology to make things easier so that we can get people here. You know, immigrants are the most likely people in America to start new businesses. You know, my office is in St. Louis. I'm inside of T-Rex, which is a big tech incubator here. And I look at all of the startups here and immigrants disproportionate. They're not all of them. They're not the majority of them. But St. Louis doesn't have a huge immigrant population. And you compare the percentage of immigrants on the streets to the percentage of immigrants here starting businesses, starting tech companies, it's a higher number. And they're hiring the graduates from St. Louis University and Washington and Michigan State. The, the you know, struggle for someone who's doing a startup. And I'm, I'm coming now from a technology standpoint. One of the, the hardest struggles for startups is customer acquisition. And I would think for a product, that's not a product, but a solution like you have with Road to Status, it would be awareness. Do you do this through law firms? I mean, how do you how do you make people aware that this is there? A lot of this, I mean, that's been a lot of our, our issue has been awareness. You know, we've done a good job of being out in the press and doing our Google ad buys and all of that. Um, but 
having more and more people learn about us, learn that we're built by people. This isn't just a bunch of technologists doing this. I've got great technologists. You know, our CTO is brilliant. The people who operate our company understand acquisition. They understand how to run a business. I don't understand any of that. Um, our COO, John, you know, he works harder than anybody um, I can think of. But we're being designed by somebody like me who actually helped write these laws. Um, so getting more people to understand that, you know, we're doing this in a way that we're here to benefit them, to make it easier is, it's hard. You know, getting our name out there and getting people to trust us is hard. Um, we've been doing a much better job of it and every month we're doing better, but getting the word out is a big deal. You know, road to status, I think could help lots and lots of people. And it's a, it's a way you know, we just deployed it in Spanish recently. It's a way to let people... Have you ever heard of something called a notario? No. So immigration is a very different world, too, because there's this concept of notarios out there. Notario is a Spanish word for notary. But in Mexico, it is often used in a context that means legal expert. And in a lot of these communities, there are people there who are putting themselves out there as immigration experts and are getting paid by people to help them with their immigration stuff. But as I said, this is 2,500 pages. And often these people are taking advantages of the clients and taking their money and not helping them. And that kind of goes back to you said, when did I come up with this idea? I was on detail from D.C. to L.A. And I was in court in Los Angeles, downtown on Olive Street. And I had a huge docket. And I was in front of a judge I'd never been in front of before. And all of a sudden, he just got up and started basically cursing out this old Chinese man in the back of the courtroom. Who are you? What are you doing here? Who are you? What are you doing here? And I'm like, freaked out. Like, this judge is crazy. Like, that guy's clearly this client's like cousin or something. Like, what kind of rude asshole judge is this, you know? And I come to find out as I'm listening, that no, the judge wasn't actually being mean to the client. He recognized the guy in the back of the room is a guy who is taking advantage of hundreds of Chinese people in LA, filling out bogus applications for them, getting their money, putting them into court, and then this judge is like annihilating their cases because they're bogus. And these are people who if they went to and could afford good immigration help, actually had good cases. And so the judge was like, you're a scam artist. Get out of my courtroom. And it kind of hit me. that's like, wow, you know, other than an immigrant's health and their family's health, the most important thing to them is their status. And they're being taken advantage of by these fly-by-night, you know, people who can connect with them because they speak their language. You know, they're the same people who help them get car insurance, who help them file their taxes, who help them get postage, who help them before Skype was a thing, communicate with people back home. They trust these people who are screwing them on immigration stuff. Could we just make it a little easier? You know, my dad got his PhD at Michigan State. He's really smart. If we made it just a little bit easier, he could do it. And people say, okay, well, why should you do this stuff online? Well, we do our taxes online, you know? You just told me that you got your degree from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. You'd never been there. I took courses on a submarine. I served on what? submarines, and that's how I did my courses. 
Never saw the school. Right. We do that. Can we help people do that for immigration at the same time protecting them and saying, hey, we've got questions here. And if you answer these wrong, not wrong, but if you tell the truth, put your stuff in there and we flag issues, you need to talk to an attorney. We don't let you go forward. We force you into an attorney queue and make you talk to them. Um, But it's cheaper for the attorney because the attorney doesn't have an acquisition cost. The attorney doesn't have marketing costs. The attorney doesn't have admin costs because the client is uploading all of their own information. So the attorney can do it, you know, let's say you're an attorney who worked for a firm and now you're a stay-at-home mom. You've got four hours a day where you can really do something. Well, you can do this from your laptop. You can help somebody out. We've driven down the cost. We've driven up the accuracy. We've made the connection better. That's a win. It's you know, one of, that's, yeah, it's the best type of solution because it's one based upon your own personal experience. And in the tech space, those are always the most successful. When it's based upon something that you've gone through and you're solving a problem actually for yourself and your own work experience, those tend to work the best. I would agree with that with one more addition too. We're not just solving a problem. You know, one of um, my founders said it well. We're solving an adult problem. Oh, that's a that's you good. Know, yeah. You know, this this is this is this isn't just a want. This is a need. You know, this is you know, in our building. One of you know, I do a lot of work in the tech world with all these startups here. We do a lot of work in the civil rights world. Um, there's some parts of my career that I've really enjoyed. And working with tech startups where somebody pitches me an idea that I think is either very limited or is just kind of a dumb idea, and then seeing how that niche works blows my mind. You know, um, there's a, I don't work with these guys, but there's a business in my building called Invisible Boyfriend, Invisible Girlfriend. You pay them and they basically set up a fake boyfriend or girlfriend for you who will text you, who will send you Facebook messages and all this. Why? Because sometimes you go to Thanksgiving and you don't want grandma asking you who you're dating anymore. And it's just exhausting. Not an adult problem. Not an adult problem. Not an adult problem. Right. You know, or if you're Uh, an adult and you're using it, shame on you for God's sake. I'm sorry. Come on, man. There's there's Tinder, there's Grindr, there's enough. You can find somebody. If you don't want, you know, there's another one of the products I love in this building. There's guys that have this company called Greetable. It is a greeting card that you can um, customize, and it just folds into a box. And you can go online and you can put a pick a candle, or I think they have champagne flavored gummy bears to send as a thank you to somebody. You know, I'm like, how limited is that? You know, okay, they're killing it. Why? Because one thing when I married into this Catholic family, we Iranians don't send thank you cards. And then sometimes like, <laughs> but like since I've gotten married, I send thank you cards now. My kids send thank you. And sometimes we get a thank you card and we send a thank you card for getting the thank you card. And it's all this. But it's, you want to give people gifts, but you don't want to spend a hundred bucks on flowers that are going to die. That window of that $20 or $15 really nice personalized gift, but I can do it from my phone. I can do it and I can shoot it out and not have to work. That's great. You know, um, I'm going to, so I'm going to put road to status above that <laughs> in my hierarchy of needs. Well, I'd like to be doing as well as those guys <laughs> no, are doing. I, I would but, love for you <laughs> to be doing that. Well, we're going to do everything we can, uh, to help get the message out. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating talking to you because, you know, how I heard about you, again, was the New York Times um, op-ed piece, which I absolutely loved. 
And then to find out that I know someone who knew you, Crystal, right? And so this whole story arc, um, when Chris reached out to me, he said, Here, here's, he told me all about, you know, Road to Status and how he had met you and, and the work you were doing and it, you know, and it, it struck me, you know, so much that idea of giving back. Um, and then Chris sent me this story and I think it sums you up. I'm, I'm reading this verbatim. Okay. This is oh, from no. Chris. A good oh, story no. to tell would be our first trip to Vegas where we had front row seats to see Warren Zevon, who's our favorite. I say his name right? Warren Zevon? Yeah. Warren Zevon. Yeah. You, you know, Warren Zevon is, whenever you hear about him, he's the musician's musician. Every musician loves him. He does amazing stuff. But the only song anybody's ever heard of his is Werewolves of London, which is good, but he's got such better songs. One of them, Lawyers, Guns, and oh Money. Oh, my God. Well, there you cool. go. Well, Chris said, thanks yeah. to you, you, they missed the first four or five songs because you decided to teach everybody craps, and they turned five bucks into $800. So he said it was one and only time, by the way, that we made a, <laughs> you well, made a suggestion. I also learned something. I learned something, too. I did not know that in Vegas, bands do not have opening acts. <sighs> Well, you know, I assumed there would be an opening yeah. app. Apparently in Vegas, that's not a so thing. So we're just going to stick to uh, um, Road to Status as the good thing. <laughs> I'm sure there's more yeah. stories. that I, There actually is one more that I'm not going to say because, you know, it, it is rather funny, but I don't want to do it to our listeners. Um, I love the organization. We're, I love the solution. We're going to put links out to it. And you know what would be fun? Maybe um, in a couple of months, let, let's see what plays out in the U.S., but to get you on maybe with um, one or two other folks. And kind of talk about what's happening and also kind of circle back to see where road to status is. All right. Would you be open to that? Yeah, I'd love to do that. We're hopefully going to see a change with these DACA um, kids, who these dreamers who've been here for years and out of nowhere, even though the president promised he wouldn't do anything, he ripped out the rug from under them. We're hoping maybe at the end of this month or at least by March, something will happen. Um, but we've got to change it. You just can't have this happening. You know, I feel like change is going to happen here on immigration for the worst reason possible. The reason is that there've been too many people in the shadows and as they're getting ripped out of their homes and deported, especially people who aren't risks, each of them knows Americans. And you're just, every time you see one of these stories, you see a hundred people saying, well, he's not who I wanted gone. He's not who I thought should have been removed. Those are good people. And that's unfortunately how you change people's minds. You know, I have this really, you can link to it, this story, um, which was our first high profile immigration case that we did. We did it pro bono. It was a woman who's been in the United States since she was seven. She's from Thailand. Her dad, her mom married a U.S. serviceman. She came over here with her green card and lived on an army base her whole life. Thought she was a citizen. She had Two kids who were serving in the military, one of them overseas in a combat zone. She didn't have a lot of money. Her husband, American, um, was working on a truck. He was a mechanic. The truck collapsed, shattered his legs. He could never work again. She ended up breaking the law, stealing some money from her boss. Um, she worked at a pizza place to pay for their medical bills. When she got caught, she admitted everything, wanted to take responsibility, learned she wasn't a citizen. First time, 40-some-odd years old, and the government was going to deport her back to Thailand. And we got involved and were able to stop that, which was great. Once we got it to the right people at Homeland, you know, it was a different world back then. They listened, they exercised their discretion, they all realized this would have been 
an injustice. From rural, rural Missouri, you know, you drive through that part of town, of the country, it's Confederate flags, you know, as conservative as it can be. When this story broke, dozens of people from that small town reached out to me and were like, we had no idea that somebody like this could be taken away. And it changed their minds. So hopefully in a few months. It's awareness, yeah. right? It gets back to awareness. It's it's And it gets back to empathy and actually thinking these are real people. This isn't, it's not the movies, right? It's not television. These are real people. These are real lives. They're your neighbors. 99.99% per, of the these folks are just normal, regular people at the end they're of the, the day. They're the people who... And they're disproportionately the people who feed us and raise our kids. You know, why wouldn't we want to take care of them? This show is crafted for you by the folks at 11FS. We're building banks for the future. Find out more at 11FS.com. If we hooked you with this episode, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Every star helps. Today's episode was edited by Michael Bailey and produced by Laurel Watkins, Ollie Judge, and myself. I'm Sam Mall, and this has been Connection Interrupted. Thanks for listening.